Hello, microbe friends. I'm Dr. Justine Dees, and welcome to the Joyful Microbe Podcast. It's the show all about the microbes we encounter in our daily lives. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't wait to share this show with you. Fermented foods like beer, wine, bread, sauerkraut, yogurt, and kombucha are delicious to eat and fun to make at home. And we can give credit to microbes for the wonderful flavors of these foods. The process of fermentation is when microbes transform food in such a way that it extends its shelf life, improves the taste, or makes it beneficial to consume. So today, I'll be chatting with Dr. John Leach, who is a scientist that studies fermented foods. This will be fun because I've previously spoken with him in 2019 for the blog when I did a fermented foods article series, which I'll link to in the show notes. So today, in this episode, we talk about the basics. What are fermented foods? What is fermentation? And also, why eating fermented foods is worth doing what microbes are typically found in fermented foods, and what health benefits come from fermented foods. And then we kind of talk about something that I think is a really interesting topic that a lot of people may not realize is actually a thing, but there's this question of, do fermented foods contain probiotics? Because there is actually a scientific definition for the word probiotics that was decided on by a panel of experts in 2013, brought together by the International Scientific Association for Probiotics and Prebiotics, and they settled on the definition. So here it is. Probiotics are live microorganisms that, when administered in adequate amounts, confer a health benefit on the host. Because there's this definition, that means that companies that manufacture products that claim to be probiotic should meet that standard. And so we discuss if that term is really being used properly when people talk about fermented foods and um, how it applies and why sometimes the term might be misused. And also we talk about if fermented foods can alter our microbiome. And um, during the interview, we discussed this possibility and mentioned that there has been a lack of studies in this area. But then John let me know after the interview that a couple of studies have come out that address whether or not fermented foods can increase microbial diversity and support this possibility. So I'll also link to those in the show notes. And lastly, we talk about can we get sick (laughs) from making our own fermented foods at home? And then, of course, because we kind of like squash those fears that you might have, we have an at-home microbiology activity for you that John shares that's all about how to make sauerkraut, which is a topic that we discuss or a is a uh, one of the fermented foods that we talk about the most in the podcast episode. So I hope that you enjoy it. I love this episode, and um, it's it's a topic that is near and dear to my heart because fermented foods, since I did that blog post series a few years ago, fermented foods has been one of my favorite microbiology topics. So let's get on into the interview. Hi, John. Thanks so much for coming on the Joyful Microbe podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you about fermented foods. Hey, Justine. Delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. So you are a fermented foods researcher, so you're going to share some knowledge with us about fermentation and the delicious foods that we can make through the process of fermentation. But... Before we get into that, can you kind of give us an explanation of what fermented foods are and what fermentation is? Sure. So I guess a kind of technical definition of fermentation, and I'll break it down afterwards, would be foods that are defined as those made through desired microbial growth and enzymatic conversion of food components. 
I guess what that means, the word uh, desired is important in there because some people might call fermentation control rotting, but you want it to, um, the bacteria and the yeast to act on the food in a way that makes it either taste nicer or last longer. Um, fermented foods, there's just quite a wide range of them. There are over 5,000 types from around the world. And I mean, many listeners will be familiar with most of them, like chocolate and cheese and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and we love those things. And actually, I think a lot of people don't realize that chocolate goes through a fermentation process. So how did you originally get interested in fermented foods? Uh, it was a strange tangent. I was studying, I've been a zoologist for most of my uh, undergraduate studies. And during my master's, I was studying bats and longevity in bats, how long they live. Bats live an exceptionally long time, or at least many species of bats do. And the microbiome was emerging kind of in the scientific were outside of microbiology studies, it was starting to emerge as very important for health. Microbiologists had known about it for a bit longer, but as a zoologist, it was new to me. And my supervisor at the time had suggested looking into, she had been, Professor Emma Thieling in UCB in Ireland, had been studying bats, or still is, for quite a long time. And she had quite a lot of data on these bats over numbers of years but they hadn't actually looked at the microbiome of these bats yet. And it was another avenue she wanted to investigate in terms of could that potentially be playing a role in how long they lived. So that was my first introduction into the microbiome. And I had to do a lot of reading in or around the topic of microbiomes and health. I kind of got hooked from there. And then I applied for a PhD position in pork in Ireland to investigate fermented foods further because fermented foods, many of the ones that we study, have live microorganisms in them and I wanted to investigate their role in terms of health and their ability perhaps to change our own microbiomes. So what do you feel like you've learned from that after actually diving into that? Because I think a lot of people have that in their minds that these are live microorganisms and so we are consuming them. So what do you, how do you have like, you know, base before and after, how do you, how does, how's it changed for you, your view of that, of how it changes the microbiome? Well, it, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. I had no real background in microbiology four and a half years ago when I first started studying the topic. So I've learned quite a lot about microbiology in general in terms of fermented foods and the live microbes within them and their ability to change the microbiome or the, the human microbiome, nothing is really conclusive on that front yet. There has been very few studies and of those studies they are quite small. So we don't actually know yet what effect eating fermented foods containing live microorganisms can do to us. There's been a bit of evidence so far it's starting to get stronger and stronger, showing that perhaps fermented foods are a good source of microbes for the human gut, or at least can change the human gut microbiome to some extent. But the evidence, I guess, isn't strong enough yet, really, to, to say it with any confidence. Yeah, that's really interesting, because I think we're all under the impression that these um, these fermented foods are going to somehow make a huge change in, um, in our lives. But, but I think I want to talk about that a little bit later, and I want to back up and just kind of talk about different types of foods that you can ferment before we dive into all the health benefits and stuff. So, what, um, so you have been involved in fermentation both professionally and personally. And so, um, what different foods have you fermented in the lab and then at home? In the lab, we, well, I personally haven't fermented too much in the lab. I fermented a bit of kombucha. Most of my research involves getting pre fermented foods from other people. I let them do their hard work. And then we extract DNA from them. And that's how we studied them. But at home, I have, uh, because I didn't have a background in microbiology or fermented foods, 
I found it much easier to um, immerse myself in the research if I knew what it was doing. And I thought fermenting these foods at home was a great way to do that. I got a bit addicted to it then. But I have fermented quite a wide range of foods, kombucha and uh, kefir, milk kefir, water kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi. I also made mead. If there's any students lift, then it's a quite a cheap way to make yourself a strong alcoholic drink. Just involves mixing honey and water. And um, yeah, it's it's quite nice, quite easy to do and a cheap way of having a nice Friday night. <laughs> It sounds like that's you have fermented lots of different foods. That's really fun. So, but what would you um, recommend for someone who's never done fermentation before? What would you recommend starting with? I guess sauerkraut is probably one of the easiest because with the other foods that I do, milk kefir or water kefir or kombucha, you need a starter culture. If you have that starter culture, they're very easy to put if you wanted to just go down to the supermarket tomorrow and pick up cabbage and salt and you have some mason jars at home, then that's the kind of food you could just easily do there and then. Uh, if you can get scobies, I guess it depends on what part of the world you're in, in terms of how easy it is to get them. Here in Ireland, it's quite easy. There's lots of different Facebook groups, etc. to get them off. Kombucha is a very easy one too. It's also very forgiving if you forget about it for a while or, or neglect it a bit it's quite easy to bring back to life and ferment again it's also for me it's probably the tastiest and the one that you can have the most fun with you can really try any kind of flavors or fruit juices you want as part of the second fermentation and um, so yeah kombucha or sauerkraut probably are the easiest i guess so can you explain you talked about the starter culture um can you explain for people who don't really know that there's a difference between the way that different fermented foods are made? Can you explain that, how there are some foods that have a starter culture and some that are just done through wild fermentation? Yeah, sure. So as you've said, the broad categories would be like wild or spontaneous fermentation or then starter culture fermentations. There are more categories within them, but just simply... The spontaneous fermentation will be a food like sauerkraut or kimchi where you really just prepare an environment that's suitable for the desirable microbes to grow. So in the case of sauerkraut, you grate or cut up cabbage and you add salt, typically about 2% of the weight of the cabbage of salt. And this environment that you create with the salt excludes, it stops the microbes you don't want growing in the cabbage, microbes that might spoil it or microbes that could be bad for your health, pathogens, etc. But the microbes that are actually living in or on the cabbage leaves or in the environment, they're the ones that will colonize and take over that fermentation and they're the ones that will lead to the, the sauerkraut eventually, the, the sour tasting version of the original cabbage you put in. A starter culture fermented food, kombucha being a good example of that, is where you have a population or an ecosystem of microbes that you seed the batch with. So if kombucha is fermented tea, you make a pot of tea and you add quite a lot of sugar, but you initiate that fermentation by adding what we call a SCOBY. It's an acronym for symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast. And it's a strange looking cellulose pellet that sits at the top of the kombucha. And the bacteria and yeast that live on that will then colonize the broth and the, the sugary tea and they will be the ones responsible for the fermentation. There's a bit more control with the starter cultures because it's consistent each time, whereas with the spontaneous fermentations, the flavor will be consistent most times you do the spontaneous fermentations, but you have less control over what microbes are actually in those fermentations. So with the spontaneous fermentation, you just have microbes that are on whatever you're um, creating the food with, so cabbage or um, do they come from the environment ever for any of the fermented foods? Yeah, they do indeed. Um, particularly for the spontaneous ones, that would be quite a big source of microbes, not just the cabbage, but the vessel, the, the containers you're using to ferment in. If you're making it in your kitchen, your kitchen microbes 
might get in there too. Uh, for people who begin their own sourdough starter cultures, most of those yeasts and bacteria that get into those sourdough starter cultures would be just from the environment and the air. There's less of it in the the starter culture fermentations, but even still, a lot of studies have shown that even in Chinese liquor making, that some of the flavor profiles of the the end product come from the microbes that live in the environment in the production facility and not actually some of the starter cultures they're adding. So the environmental microbes, the ones around your house or your environment or the cooking utensils you're using, they seem to be very important when it comes to uh, many fermented foods. So with um, some of the, let's see. So when we start with sauerkraut, you have a really salty environment. Is that mostly what excludes the other organisms that we don't want growing in there? Or does the acid also kind of help with that? Initially, it would just be the salt. But once the fermentation kicks in and you have a lot of the lactic acid bacteria, these are a very important group of bacteria for many fermentations. They'll start to reduce the pH by producing lactic acid. And once the pH drops below a certain threshold, four or five pH four or five, most of the bad um, microbes, the pathogens and swellish microorganisms, they can no longer persist in the environment. So it's a combination of the salt at first and then eventually the salt plus the low pH that keeps the food from going bad or being dangerous. And what about with sourdough? How does that work since we don't add salt to it? It's just flour and water. Sourdough, you're constantly um, feeding the sourdough every day. With, or at, at first, they get it going. And the acetic acid bacteria, there's lactic acid and acetic acid bacteria in sourdough, and they keep the pH quite low too. So that would be how they would exclude the pathogens in the case of sourdough. There's yeast in there too, um, but it's mostly the acetic and lactic acid bacteria in sourdough that kind of keep it safe from being colonized by water microbes in there that you might not like. I think it's pretty amazing that you can, I mean, I think spontaneous fermentation is really amazing because it's, you're not even adding any culture to it. It's just whatever microbes are there and they are selected for based on the salt or the environment and, and then they grow and exclude the other organisms and then the other with um, a starter culture, it's like you have this expert group of organisms that are really good at growing in these different conditions, like in ferment or in um, sweet tea <laughs> for kombucha. So I just think fermentation is pretty incredible, and in that you know thousands of years ago people figured this out that this is a good way to preserve food. Yeah, and certainly, as you pointed out, with the spontaneous fermentation, it just goes to show how much of these useful microbes are all around us that we don't see or even know about until we actually make one of these foods. Mm-hmm. It seems like with what I've read that some people would say that you could ferment almost anything. <laughs> yes. Do you agree with that or disagree with that? <laughs> I am quite a fussy eater. It was a big leap for me to start eating some of these foods in the first place. But after being heavily involved in the topic for years, I've seen, not tasted, but I've seen quite a wide range of things that I don't think I'll ever be brave enough to eat. There's one very famous food from Sweden. I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of it now, but Sermstroming, it's called. It's fermented herring. And you can watch people on YouTube opening this can. It's a little tin can of fermented herring and <laughs> they intend to go and taste it, but most of them don't make it that far. The smell alone kind of oh. really kills them. So they don't actually, I haven't seen any of them really actually putting it in their mouth and tasting it. There's also things like fermented seagull. I think that's from Greenland. <laughs> um yeah, there's some strange things out there that, well, I say strange, but I'm not used to them. I 
just would not be raving off the try some of them. As I said, I was a very fussy eater before these foods, so I'm doing well mm-hmm. to eat the ones I do. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's really neat because it's a part of a lot of different cultures and they make foods that kind of work for where they are and where they live. And um, so I think that's really neat that it's very adaptable to where you live as well and the foods that are available there. So if someone was not really interested in adding fermented foods to their diet, what would you say to try to convince them that it's worth doing? I'm probably not a very good salesman, but I mean, there are over 5,000 different varieties and I'd imagine almost everybody is probably eating some already that they might not have been aware were fermented. This was my case anyway. I didn't realize, as I said, chocolate, even coffee, wine, beer, any alcoholic drink you can think of, cheese. There's some really delicious ones out there that most people will be consuming already. As for the artisanal ones, the ones that I'm more involved with studying, uh, things like kombucha and water kefir are really delicious. They're not maybe what a lot of people might associate with the kind of vinegary smelling sauerkraut or pickles. And you can add a lot of flavors to them. Water kefir is a great replacement for soft drinks, for fizzy drinks. And again, it's something you can flavor to your own liking after the first fermentation. So it's fun to play around with the recipes. It's fun to make them. And some of them are extremely tasty to consume after you've made them. Yeah, I really enjoy making kombucha and being able to decide how it tastes. And also it is way cheaper to make it at home than to go and buy kombucha. So if you're someone that has actually found that you like kombucha from the store, then it's like a much, much cheaper way to actually go about drinking it if you're going to, if you know you want to have it on a regular basis. Yeah, it's very expensive here too. Um, I mean, I could make probably three months supply here for the cost of what it is for one small bottle. Uh, I also much prefer the taste of homemade stuff. I'm not very good in the kitchen or at cooking, but even I can make a kombucha that I much rather to taste of than some of the <laughs> store-bought varieties. Yeah, I agree. It's, you can add exactly what you want to be in there. And for me, it's usually strawberries and blueberries. It's delicious. And a little bit of ginger sometimes. That sounds delicious. Um, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the microbes that are in fermented foods. And um, can you give us a few examples of different foods or beverages, what the microbes are and what they're doing in the different fermented foods. And so your research that was published in November of 2020 looked at this. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Just give us some examples. Yeah, sure. So we looked at 58 foods in that study from various parts of the world, mostly Europe, in fact, mostly Ireland. But we had examples from... Uh, Asia and from North America, from Mexico. And we had one African sample too. So we looked mostly at foods that are kind of regaining popularity these days. The ones you'll find it almost Instagram influencer, uh, fermented foods, kombucha and <laughs> kimchi and uh, water kefir. So well, different kind of foods obviously have different kind of microorganisms in them. And we looked at what we call sugar foods. So these are foods like kombucha and water kefir where you add a lot of sugar before the fermentation. And this is the main food source for the bacteria and yeast in the foods. So in a lot of these sugar fermentations, you get quite a lot of acetic acid bacteria. And these produce acetic acid. Obviously, that's where they get their name from as well. But they consume some of the alcohol, the ethanol that the yeasts are producing. The yeast in these foods will be things like uh, Saccharomyces, which we are all familiar with from baker's yeast and brewer's yeast. Uh, You do get a little bit of lactic acid bacteria in some of these sugar foods too. That's more dependent on some of the fermentation conditions, whether it's aerobic or anaerobic. But what we found in the samples we had was mostly acetic acid bacteria in those sugar foods. Then we had a group of dairy foods, so these will probably be quite familiar to people too, things like cheeses, 
milk kefir. We had a, another soft cheese called labney. And again, it was, sorry, not again, the, it was lactic acid bacteria mostly in these kind of foods. Some yeast too, like Saccharomyces again. And there was quite a lot of Lactococcus lactis, which is a very common microbe you find in dairy fermentations and yogurt fermentations in particular. Uh, we had the last group of foods we looked at was uh, salt foods, brine foods. So sauerkraut, which we were speaking about, that would be a good example of that. Also kimchi. A lot of these would be fermented vegetables where you add a 2% salt solution to make the right environment for the fermentation to begin. And these foods, again, like the dairy foods, had a lot of lactic acid bacteria in it too. So is there much overlap between the dairy foods and the brine foods where they're lactic acid bacteria, but how similar is that um, as far as what different lactic acid bacteria that you actually get in there? Um, they did. We have uh, statistical ways of looking at this and the microbiomes of these foods were quite different, but in terms of lactic acid bacteria, that's a quite a large group of bacteria. Mm. There were uh, lactic acid bacteria in the brine foods that would originate on plants, like there's one lact lactobacillus plantarum, and that's quite common to find on any kind of uh, vegetation that's growing. Whereas in the milk, it would have been, uh, as I said, lact lactococcus lactis, and then lactobacillus kefiraneal fashions and that's quite specific to the to kefir environment so hmm. it the higher you go up taxonomically i guess the, the more generic you call them then it does look like there's quite a lot of overlap but when you really drill down into the, the species level or even strain level identity of these microbes that's where the differences would be so besides making lactic acid and making acetic acid, what are the microbes doing in these different foods? So the yeast, I guess, in kombucha would be one of the better studied and not from kombucha, mostly from the alcohol brewing industry. So yeasts are really good at providing a lot of those complex flavors, the, the volatile compounds, the ones that really give the, the complex notes in some of these uh, fermented drinks, beer and wine, etc. And the acetic acid bacteria as well, they were shown in a recent sourdough study that they have a massive role to play in the flavor profiles of these foods as well. And the lactic acid bacteria, again, they will be producing a huge amount of lactic acid. And depending on the type of lactic acid bacteria that are there too, they could also be um, producing things like carbon dioxide, which if you're making kombucha or water kefir, will make your drink carbonated by the time you drink it. They've also got um, mm. potentially a lot of roles to, to play in health, which I know you wanted to talk about a bit later, which we're not entirely certain of yet, but they, they have quite a number of different roles and they all produce uh, chemicals, metabolites, we call them, to crossfeed. So a yeast might produce something that a bacteria let's say in kombucha again, I always find it a great example. The, the yeast will produce ethanol and it will also break down the sucrose into a form that the bacteria can then consume. So they're all cooperating. It's not just what they're providing into the drink, but it's how they're all cooperating and providing things for each other as well, cooperating to produce the end products. Yeah. So this is what people call a microbial community. And I think it's pretty cool to think about that these different organisms are interacting in the food. I mean, it's like you have a little group of microbes when you do this at home that you're cultivating and then they're all interacting in this little world that you're growing on your countertop. I just think it's really neat to think about that. Yeah, teamwork. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder, would you, is is it true that the more different types of 
um, organisms that are in the food, the more complex the flavor profile is? I'm not sure if studies have looked at that. A lot of the what we know about the flavor profiles so far does come from the yeast. They'd be the best studied because of their commercial importance. Um, and I, I couldn't really give you a definite answer on that if a more complex ecosystem. I know if you oversimplify it, then you're not going to get the complexity, but I'm not sure it necessarily needs to be extremely complex, like 40 or 50 different species to get a very complex mix. I know in wine fermentation, it's usually just one or two species that are responsible for most of it, unless that the yeast Saccharomyces, and you don't really want too many other microorganisms in there or their spoilage in terms of taste. They don't do mm. anything harmful to the drink, but wine consumers tend to be quite fussy about their flavors. So they expect mm. the same result each time. It seems like with sourdough, though, um, versus bread made with the one species, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, where you just buy it in the packet, then you get this. I mean, that's that's one example where I guess it is you, the you have more organisms in sourdough than you do when you just make bread with yeast alone, and that gives you a more complex flavor profile. But yeah, I could see how. If you're going to look, it would require scientific studies to really say that um, that the more organisms equals more complex flavor profile. But it's still interesting to think about. Yeah, I, I don't know so much about sourdough. It's not something I've looked at. But I think with bread, there's very little fermentation that goes on it. I think the yeast just helps the bread rise. I don't think it's active for very long. Whereas in sourdough, as well as having many more species, but you're also fermenting that dough for weeks or at least days at a time before that dough gets transformed into the bread. So the, the fermentation process has a lot longer to change the taste profile in a, in a sourdough versus um, a regular bread. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so let's talk about the health benefits. Um, what are your... You've given us a little bit of your thoughts on what you think about the health benefits, but can you, are there any examples of fermented foods that do provide health benefits? Yeah. So it's early days in the research. It's a very complicated topic to study. There has been uh, quite a few studies now showing some sort of benefit, but a lot of these studies are correlation and correlation doesn't equal causation. I think the, the shark and the ice cream scenario really is the best way to explain that. When ice cream sales go up, shark attacks go up, and obviously people buying ice cream doesn't cause sharks to attack. It's, you know, <laughs> they both happen in hot weather. So a lot of the fermented food, food studies so far are of a, this correlation nature that consuming fermented foods is associated with particular good outcomes. Um, but we have to dig into this a lot and find out, is this just correlation or is there some mechanism by which they're doing it? But uh, there are also studies, um, a limited number and small scale so far, showing that the consumption of certain fermented foods has um, got some benefits like uh, hypertension, uh, cardiovascular disease. So these are fermented soy products in the case of the cardiovascular disease. Uh, for hypertension, um, it was casein-derived lactopeptides, so that was just a fermented milk product. Um, depression and coffee, if coffee is kind of a loose fermented food, I guess it's not one we study. Yogurt consumption was, this again was correlation, but was um, inversely proportional to the onset of type 2 diabetes. So people who were consuming one yogurt a day we're less likely to get type 2 diabetes. Um, there's a sauerkraut study that showed that the consumption of sauerkraut, and this is both pasteurized where the microbes were killed and also live, but both types of sauerkraut were had positive outcomes for people with irritable bowel syndrome. So we're yet to do these on a big scale. It's, it's quite difficult to study these foods. We're talking about the spontaneous fermentations earlier and what happens is you usually every time you make a batch 
of, for instance, sauerkraut, the microbiology in there could be quite different from the previous batch. So to try and run that in a clinical trial where you might not be delivering, you probably won't be delivering the same kind of microbes time and time again, that's a really hard study to, to conduct. It's For scientists, it's very difficult to control and difficult to look at, particularly on a big scale. The studies that people refer to, are they sometimes not even in humans whenever like you run across an article that talks about fermented foods are good for you? Um, are some of them not even done in humans? Yeah, no, all of the ones I mentioned there, they are in humans. There are a far bigger number of studies done in animals. It's the first step usually for looking at something. And with the likes of kombucha, now, it was about 140 plus studies done on kombucha in terms of health, but all of these were done in animals. I think there's one study in humans and it's not, it wasn't very well controlled. If you read about kombucha online, there are a ridiculous amount of claims about it curing arthritis, even curing cancer. Dangerous kind of claims considering that mm. none of this has actually been tested in people. And they're very well written articles with a lot of scientific jargon in them. So it's easy to be convinced I was until I started reading more about it. And then you realize that they're making all of these claims, only in certain articles now, but making a lot of big claims for a food that actually hasn't been tested yet on a proper scale where you could stand behind it with confidence and say, yeah, this food can provide these specific benefits. And what about... I, I often will see an article that says fermented foods contain probiotics. Um, do you agree with this? And are there cases where this is true or false? Yeah, it's it's a complex issue. I was at a conference last week and I found out that in Canada, to call something a probiotic, it just has to belong to a certain species of bacteria. There's a list of maybe 15 or 20. And as long as you can say that this species is in a food and you can say that food is probiotic, but mm. that's just one country. And as a scientist, we stick to the scientific definitions of a probiotic. And just to give you the technical definition, it's a microorganism when administered in adequate amounts confers a health benefit. And that's kind of contingent on three things, both dose, strain level, and also health outcome. So it has to be a very specific amount of a particular microorganism. The strain is really important. E. coli is a great example. There's one strain of E. coli that's a probiotic, but there's other strains of E. coli that will make you quite sick. And hmm. in terms of the health outcome, these are usually tested for one particular uh, disease state, such as IBS. So let's say you have a lactobacillus plantarum that was shown to be really good for IBS and you stick that in a drink or a food and then you just attach the probiotic label to it. And if someone's drinking this and they don't have that health condition, then, you know, they, they could associate it with thinking that this will just generally improve their health. So, yeah, it is, it's a, it's a complex issue. As I said, many probiotics are sourced in fermented foods so just in order for fermented food to actually fit that description of being a probiotic, it has to really undergo. It's the responsibility, I guess, of the, the person selling it or of scientists to show that a particular strain in a particular food is a probiotic. And unfortunately, it leaves it quite difficult for foods like sauerkraut, which we believe a lot of these are probably very good for you for various reasons, not just because of live microorganisms, but it's next to impossible to go to the kind of lens of analysis that's required to show that if I make a batch of sauerkraut this week and there's particular species and strains in it, there's no way that I'm going to, first of all, sequence them and then form massive clinical trials to show that that one batch of sauerkraut that might last me a week had probiotics in it. But yeah, anytime I read the probiotic yeah. label attached to fermented food, it does 
it, it straight away says to me that, it, you know, it's, it's a false claim. Um, unless, no, sorry, the, some manufacturers do add known probiotic strains to their foods, such as yogurts. And in those cases, then it's perfectly okay to call the food probiotic because all the evidence and uh, scientific research has been carried out on them. But for the most part, I, I think it's falsely attached to most of these fermented foods. Yeah, it seems like it's hard to actually say whether fermented foods contain probiotics. And so that's a broad statement that's really difficult to back up a lot of times, especially when we make them at home. But like you said, there are some products that will actually put specific amounts of a specific strain in their food. And then in that case, it's, you know, hopefully if they're being honest about it and understand what a probiotic is, then they, then those foods can actually be called probiotic. I saw, I I haven't looked into it, but I saw one particular kombucha, they added a type of bacillus um, bacteria to it. And I think like specific amounts of it too. And I'm wondering if maybe that one, if that's a probiotic strain, then maybe that could be considered a probiotic food. But um, yeah, it seems like overall, it's difficult to say. And it requires a lot more of the consumer to look into it than just saying like, okay, I made sauerkraut at home and now I'm consuming probiotics. But it's not to say that you're not. It's just hard to say that you definitely are. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, as I said, a lot of probiotics originated in fermented foods. It just requires a huge burden of evidence to say it. And I think it is a kind of a responsibility of people selling the foods because you really don't know if there are probiotics in it or not, even if it's quite likely there is. It, it takes quite a lot of research to get a microbe from mm. being in a food to actually proving that it's got health benefits. And it's something that we might have to reconsider how we describe some of these terms, not probiotics, but we might need to come up with another term for many of these microbes in foods, a more generic term that doesn't require so much evidence somewhere in the middle maybe because as there is a lot of that evidence emerging that these foods are good for us and that perhaps the microbes in these foods are responsible for part of these health benefits. So it's something for us as scientists to reconsider, but as I said, for the moment, I guess most people should just be aware that they just be a little bit skeptical when they see probiotic associated with a fermented food, unless, as you mentioned, that there is a specific known probiotic strain added to that food. Yeah, I was kind of wondering if you had a way that you talk about those organisms that are in fermented foods. So, Because I think I want to encourage people to eat fermented foods. And I think that it is, they are potentially beneficial and they are beneficial in lots of ways, like you said, besides just possibly consuming a probiotic organism. So like what what's the best way that you've kind of come up with to explain that to people that well, to encourage people to eat them, but then, you know, kind of be aware also about probiotics. Well, sure. For the fermented foods, those microorganisms, even if they're not directly exerting health benefit on the consumer, true fermentation many of the foods that we study, the nutritional quality of the food improves after fermentation. So these microbes add a huge amount of vitamins and minerals to the foods, mm. making them healthier in that aspect. There's also a lot of prebiotics. So prebiotics would be things like fiber, foods that would feed your existing microbes that already live inside you. Um, they help to pre-digest the food. So in the case of yogurt, someone who might be lactose intolerant, the fermentation process removes the lactose, making that food safer for somebody maybe with um, a lactose intolerance. Uh, sourdough as well. It, the bacteria and yeast in it kind of pre-digest some of the carbohydrates in that too. And some of the ingredients just used in fermentation, such as sauerkraut, like cabbage, some of these ingredients are just good for you even before they're transformed by the microbes and the microbes kind of enhance the nutrition within the foods. So there's many different uh, aspects of 
how these foods might be beneficial aside from just having live microorganisms in them. But um, I guess in terms of the probiotics, or maybe not the right term, but a lot of microbiome studies have found that particularly in Western societies, there's like a diminishing microbiome. So when we look at people with more traditional lifestyles, maybe closer to what hunter-gatherers would have lived like 10, 13,000 years ago, these people who have an awful lot more fiber in their diet and they don't sanitize their environments, they have a lot more microbial diversity within their gut. And we know that having more diversity is generally a good thing. Um, and because we sanitize our environments, we clean down all our surfaces and we sterilize and pasteurize our foods, then it's a good thing in, in one sense. We're less prone to get infectious diseases, diseases that could kill us overnight if we ate the wrong thing. But as a consequence, we have lower diversity in our microbiomes and we also have an awful lot more chronic diseases, inflammatory diseases like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all these kind of issues. And there's massive links now between them and the microbiome. So there are talks about introducing maybe a guideline for how many microbes, like a daily consumption of microbes just to perhaps help improve our diversity inside, even though we've yet to see if fermented foods can do that uh, definitively. But it just even exposing ourselves to more microbes. And in fermented foods case, to be safe microbes, we wouldn't run the risk of maybe getting some of these infectious uh, pathogens. So, yeah, as I said, it's a very complex topic when it comes to their health. And we have a lot of work to untangle both with the microbes and uh, the metabolites they're producing within the foods. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, I mean, on the whole, it's not harmful and it's a good thing probably for us to be exposed to these organisms. And then, of course, consuming the foods themselves are is healthy and the microbes enhance the food and make it healthier. But when it comes to the microbes themselves, that it, it just doesn't hurt necessarily to expose yourself to those different microorganisms and and just to give yourself exposure to potentially healthy organisms or not harmful organisms is probably a good thing for us to do because of how clean we are these days, <laughs> Yeah, which is good. Like you said, I'm glad you emphasized that. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and they're tasty foods too. I, I eat a lot of them and I'm not mm-hmm. entirely sure if they do have a health benefit. Maybe it's a placebo, but I certainly feel better after, you know, having kefir and kombucha most days. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think there's a lot to it that is beneficial. And, and in the sense of just creating them is really... Um, it's satisfying and you see it transform. And I mean, if you actually do this at home, it's like you watch it develop and it's, I think it's really fun. And so it enhances your life in that way, I think. Um, so I, I really love it and I highly recommend it to people that (laughs) have never done it before and never made fermented foods at home. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you're allowed on Instagram anymore unless you've made sourdough and have posted pictures on it. <laughs> so for people that are worried at all about getting sick from um, fermented foods, doing this at home, um, we talked a little bit about what makes it safe. So using the right self-concentration whenever you're making things like sauerkraut um, and just making sure that all of your conditions are right, cleaning your utensils and things like that. So are there any types of microbes that people should be cautious about when they're doing this? Um, If you're making it at home, you'd have have no way really of um, knowing what's in there. I mean, if you're making kombucha and sauerkraut, if the sauerkraut gets exposed to air, if when you're making it, it's usually submerged under the brine, all of the grated or chopped cabbage, if that comes above the brine and it gets exposed to the air, they can get a yeast on it. It's generally called can yeast. 
And it's not dangerous, but it can it, it won't taste nice at all, and your cabbage will become soft and soggy, whereas sauerkraut should be quite crunchy. I'm not too aware of really any bad microbes in um, most of the fermented foods. None of the ones that we studied anyway had anything that would have alarmed us. So the, the environment that the microbes create exclude a lot of these. Most pathogens can't persist below pH 5, I think. So kombucha gets quite low, 2.5 pH, 2.5 to pH 3. So I no, I wouldn't be concerned, but at the same time, if you're making kombucha or sauerkraut and you do see a mold or fungus on the top, it's probably safer just to dump it and start again. It has happened to me a few times. I haven't eaten it. I've just tried again. Yeah. Yeah. So just an abundance of caution, I guess, whenever you see anything that seems strange. Um, so... Is there anything else about fermented foods that you think people tend to misunderstand or that you'd like to clear up? I don't think so. I think the the probiotic question that you brought up was a very good one. And I think that would be one of the more important things for people to understand. What Are they just being sold something or Hmm. is there any validation behind it? I, I guess for me, when I started studying this, again, it was just an awareness of the amount of things I was eating that actually were fermented that I didn't know about. And when you look into it a bit more, you realize just, you know, I think I saw a figure one third of the world's food consumption or something is fermented. So yeah, being aware of the amount of things you eat that are, are probably fermented that you weren't aware of. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that I learned too. And it was kind of exciting to find out that, all these different things. Like I think coffee and chocolate are one of the or two of the foods that a lot of people don't realize. But I mean, I think some people don't even think about beer being fermented and wine. So I think yeah. it's, it's just being aware of those things is kind of neat. And it's, it's nice to see like how important these microbes are for producing a lot of the flavors we like, as you said, wine and beer mm-hmm. and cheese chocolate, coffee, most people, they'd be quite a high on their list of favorite foods. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yep. They, microbes make food so much better. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So um, what would you say that you've learned overall from your work that has changed the way you think about microbes in your daily life? Um, for me personally, coming from a base of almost no microbiology background, uh, it, I mean, yeah, it's I live in a totally different world four and a half years later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, how important they are, how ubiquitous they are, how they're everywhere, and how important they are for many of my favorite foods. Yeah, I feel like after I spent my PhD studying pathogens and then taking some time after that to learn more about fermented foods, I feel like it's really altered the way that I look at microbes and the microbial world altogether. It's given me a a really positive view of it, whereas before it's kind of like you think of it more as scary. Yeah, I think it's good that that view is changing. Another thing that I left out, mm-hmm. I, I didn't have any idea how important microbes were for our own health. And... I guess through studying the fermented foods, I've learned a lot about the human microbiome and how important those our microbes that are that live inside us, how important they are for our own health. So yeah, I guess yeah, we inside us, outside us, and all around our environment, they're all playing a role in our lives. So with the microbiome, you mentioned it earlier a little bit too. And um, so are there studies, is it just kind of right now we're at a place where we're still trying to figure out how much fermented foods can actually alter our microbiomes? That's one avenue of research. Like you don't necessarily need to alter the microbiome in order to get a health benefit from the fermented foods. They just could be providing some really good nutrients or pre-digesting the food. But if we could show that they were increasing your diversity, when it comes to microbiome and health, the more diversity is generally associated with better health outcomes. 
So we get to the point where we have good evidence to show that fermented foods can alter the diversity in your microbiome, then that would be a really good indicator that these foods have a lot of benefits outside of just the enhanced nutrition, particularly for, for people living in the kind of westernized, industrialized society where we all do tend to have a lot lower microbial diversity than what our uh, traditional counterparts might have in other parts of the world or what our ancestors might have had as well when they were living in a far less sanitized environment. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how the research progresses in that area to see if we can help increase the diversity of our our microbiomes. I really hope that's true. <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> Otherwise, I've wasted a long time making them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you have a microbiology activity for us that we can all do at home. And um, so why don't you share that with us so that we can all experience the microbial world in a hands-on way? Sure. So uh, we've spoken about it a lot on today's podcast. Uh, I walk you through the steps in making sauerkraut. It's one of the easier things to make, which suits me perfectly because, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not the most talented chef. You can get many different recipes online and many of them will be a lot tastier than the, the kind of basic recipe. But the easiest way to do it will be to get a head of cabbage, uh, red or white, because they're hard they're easier to grate. You can use any other cabbage if you like too, but I generally stick to the red or white cabbage. And the easiest method, I guess, is just to grate it up with a, a cheese grater and you weigh it. So you add about 2% salt to this mixture once you've grated it. It's 2% of the weight of the cabbage. So if you have a one kilogram cabbage, you grate that up, then you add about 20 grams of salt. Mix it all together in a bowl with your hands and leave it sit for a while. You need the moisture in the cabbage leaves to kind of be sucked out by the salt that you're adding. You can also add a little bit of pressure yourself. Sometimes I put a plate on top of the cabbage and the salt once it's mixed in the bowl and leave it sit there for a few minutes just to allow the salt and the weight of the plate to kind of dry out more moisture. Once you've kind of gotten enough moisture out of the cabbage, I usually can take between 20, 30 minutes, or you can do it faster if you press it into the jar straight away. But once the salt and the cabbage is mixed and you have the moisture you need, you then transfer that into some sort of jar. You can get special jars online. That's kind of what I use now. But any standard kilner jar or mason jar, press all your cabbage and salt mixture into that jar. Make sure you transfer all the the moisture that was in the mixing bowl too. And it's really important to press it down as tight as you can and then place a little weight or something. You can get special crowd stones, but you can use anything really that fits into the jar that's clean to keep pressure on the cabbage to make sure that the cabbage is kept underneath the brine. The brine is the, the moisture and the salt that, well, the, the moisture that came off the cabbage because of the salt and then you close your jar. Once the cabbage is below that brine, you're fine. Now, what can happen after three or four days, once the fermentation really kicks in, is that cabbage might start to creep up, particularly if you don't have a weight on it. So you just have to keep an eye on it. If you have a weight on it, it should be fine. But if that cabbage at any stage pops its head above the, the water layer, you can get some undesirable uh, yeast on that cam yeast which again is safe but it just it'll ruin the taste and texture of your food and it's, it's quite simple you, I'd usually leave it for at least two weeks you will start to taste the sourness after four or five days but I'd leave it for at least two weeks and generally I wouldn't eat any of my sauerkrauts until about a month after ferment, fermented unless I ran out and have no choice but yeah it's a month fermentation and it's just chopping carrot or cabbage and adding salt and putting it into the right kind of jar. And so you can add any kind of, I've, I've done it with lots of other ingredients. I've added cabbage and, or sorry, I'm using cabbage. I've added carrots and chilies and all sorts of interesting uh, different ingredients to it. 
I think that I love sauerkraut and I love making it too. And I think the thing that surprised me the most about making sauerkraut was that before I knew anything about it and I discovered all it is is salt and cabbage, I was really surprised you didn't have to add any water to it at all. It was just that as you squeeze the cabbage that there's this you know, like it breaks the cells open of the cabbage and then that releases the liquid. And that just, I don't know, that was shocking to me because <laughs> it's like it creates its own brine once you um, just add the salt and squish the cabbage long enough and then press it down, as you said. Yeah, you do get quite a lot of brine. It's a good point, actually, because there has been occasions where if I didn't have the best cabbage in the world that maybe I didn't get enough brine to submerge the cabbage. And in that case, it's perfectly okay to make up your own brine solution. Again, 2%. So if you make a hundred mils of water, you put in two grams of salt and you can just use that then to top up, which generally speaking, as you said, there's no water needed to be added. Yeah. And it, it takes a while to, to squish up the cabbage and it your hands get my hands got a little bit tired or they get tired doing it. But but at the same time I find it very satisfying to sit there and squish the cabbage and feel it change. I mean it changes the texture as you squish it and the salt kind of starts to break it down. I think it's I think it's really neat. <laughs> the, yeah, the, it's satisfying, all right. Yeah. Bit of a mess to clean up yeah. afterwards, or at least in my case, the floor, the <laughs> table and everything gets covered. But it is, it's maybe a form of meditation. Yeah, I feel like it could be helpful for some people if they just need something to do with their hands and it's relaxing in a way. <laughs> But then with the purple cabbage, though, it is pretty messy. <laughs> yeah, it takes quite a while to wash that off your hands and from underneath your fingernails. It, yeah, it, it oh, stains. Yeah. <laughs> and just don't wear white clothes. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Good point. And um, I think I've added carrots, like you said. I've added garlic to it before. Um and it's surprising how little garlic it takes, too, because the garlic, it's really strong. Um, and I think I've added some herbs before, too. But, yeah, it's neat because you can customize it all different ways and make it taste the way that you want it to taste. Yeah, in parts of Eastern Europe, Poland, etc., they add a lot of sweet things, so like cranberries and different kind of berries. Uh, I've tasted it. I've never made it, but it is quite delicious, too. But... As you said earlier on, you can almost ferment anything. <laughs> I wouldn't probably put seagull <laughs> in it. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> um, do you have any resources about fermentation that you can recommend to us so we can go deeper with this topic? Sure. Well, I really, really enjoy I'm not just saying this because I'm speaking to you, but you had a blog uh, two years ago, maybe, on fermented foods, a five-part blog on fermented foods and I really think that's mm -hmm. one of the best resources for people to kind of find both the science side of it and the homemade personal side of it I thought that was probably still is one of the better resources on the internet for um fermented foods in terms of making it there's a couple of really good books The Art of Fermentation by Sandor Katz he's one of the fermented food gurus he's brilliant and his book is extremely good as well which mm -hmm. yeah, online I think your blog probably has anything you'd need to know about um, certainly getting into making fermented foods and the, the science behind it well thanks for that <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> that and the art of fermentation I've read that as well it is it is really good and very helpful and approachable so I really love that book as well well um Thank you so much for coming on here. Why don't you share with everybody where they can find, follow, and connect with you? Sure, yeah. So on Twitter, my handle is at leechfish. So L-E-E-C-H-F-I-S-H is my surname with fish on the end of it. Uh, I'm on Instagram too. So both on Twitter and Instagram, I'm leechfish. Excellent. Well, and it is fun to follow you both places because you um, tend to share articles about 
fermented foods and fermentation studies that are like the newest research. And then also on Instagram, I know you've shared some neat information about the different fermented foods that you've made at home and some of your thoughts on the probiotic issue that we talked about earlier. So yeah, I highly recommend everyone go follow John in those places. But thank you so much again. This has been really awesome talking to you about fermented foods. Um, So thanks. This has been great. Thank you, Justine. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Joyful Microbe Podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to help others who love microbes to find the podcast, then please leave a rating and a review for the show. And tell a friend. To learn more about the Joyful Microbe, head on over to joyfulmicrobe.com where you will find the show notes and all the links and resources mentioned. If you love Joyful Microbe and would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a virtual tip through coffee. The link is in the show notes and on joyfulmicrobe.com at the bottom of the page. Thanks again, microbe friends. Talk to you next time. Bye.